0: You're listening to audio from the West End Community Church in McGregor, Manitoba. We spent a great deal of time um, discussing what an awesome name was, and at one point she suggested maybe name him Myron, (laughs) no, Uh, I love my parents, but (laughs) come on. It didn't help that when uh, we were growing up, any time that there was a, uh, a really undesirable person on a television show, their name was Myron. Do uh, you ever notice that? <laughs> Although it is, Myron is making a resurgence these days. I, I've heard it on TV a number of times, and, and the last time I saw it on TV, the guy was sort of cool. And I was, I was pleased. I was pleased. Um, when I was uh, in school... The greatest insult, I think, in grade one was when somebody called me Myron Siren and uh, went all the way around the playground just chanting it. And then everybody else kind of grabbed onto it and hurt my feelings. I, uh, yeah, it, it it was a bit disturbing, truthfully. But names are powerful. We all have one. And you know, I, I don't know if you have really taken the time to to research your uh, name and the uh, the ide- ideology and 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 all these sorts of things. You know, what does your your name mean where does it derive from what kind of language was it derived from and and all those sorts of things i don't know if you've ever done that uh another bad thing about well maybe not a bad thing but (laughs) myron means a fragrant field uh so yeah strike three right there Uh, but names are powerful and and they're, they're something that we carry with us for our whole lives, and, and they are part of our identity. Don't you find? It doesn't matter where we go. It's one thing that we take with us. It's, it's part of our identity. It's, it's, it's our identification. It's, it's all those different things. And whether you are fond of your name or not, it is your name. You didn't get to choose it. Um but it is your name. It, it is how people know you. And I've been thinking over the last little while, just as I was thinking about Christmas 2023, I, uh, I realized, and, and it was sort of maybe derived from our, our time that we spent thinking about the attributes of God. Um, that kind of led me to think about how... We call Jesus so many different names. Uh there, there are so many different names in the word that we that we use to refer to Jesus. Um and so I thought that maybe this Christmas, here in 2023, this being the first Sunday of Advent, and um we talked about or we already lit the candle of hope. Um, but I thought that maybe we kind of discover or we kind of search together this whole idea of, you know, what is in a name? What, why is Jesus called these different names and what exactly do those names mean? And so um, over the next few weeks, I just want to focus in on, on some of the different names of Jesus uh, that are referred to maybe surrounding, more so around surrounding Christmas time and and just discussing what these different names mean and also what the implications are because of what those names mean. And to do that this morning I want to take you to Matthew chapter 1 and so if you have your Bibles um, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 1 and we know that as the genealogy. I actually uh, I had this really fun thing that I was going to do this week. I was going to tell pastor Matt that he had to read this but maybe I was going to tell him just before he came up on stage to read it and then he would turn to chapter one and see the genealogy and then I remember that it was his birthday this week and so I gave him his birthday present by telling him in the middle of the week that he was supposed to read this so that he could practice that's really nice of me I know um and then he didn't even come to church so uh, I don't want to actually read the entire chapter, uh, of, or Matthew chapter 1, or I don't want to read through the gene- genealogy, but I do want to focus in on one or two verses. And so this morning, as we talk about the names of Jesus, um, I want to focus in on Matthew chapter 1 and verse 17 specifically. So Matthew, at the beginning of his gospel, he says in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the the son of Abraham. And then he goes through the timeline. He goes through all these different names and, and this genealogy of all these different names. And he gets down to verse 17 and he says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations and from David to the deportation to Babylon 14 generations and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ 14 generations 14 generations Abraham to David 14 generations David to the deportation or the exile is another name for that and then 14 generations from the exile to Jesus let's pray heavenly father it is our desire that as we look into your word this morning that that it would be very clear that uh, these words would be used to to cleanse and to turn our hearts toward you and we thank we thank you For this time of year when we can celebrate with family, when we can do all these things, but at the same time, uh, most importantly, that we can focus in on you, loving us enough to send your Son, God with us, Jesus, Christ. We give you glory and praise this morning, Father in your precious, in your holy name. Amen. We talk a lot about history, don't we? Um, and, and I know that for some of you, maybe we talk too much about history, but um, specifically when you consider history, biblical history, world history, any kind of history, when you, when you consider it, The question I think that we have to ask ourselves is, how do we make sense of it? Because so much of history is hard to understand. Uh, ben and I went to see uh, uh, a movie this past week called Napoleon. It, obviously the story of Napoleon. Um, and it was really interesting to me because I I, I really didn't know a lot about Napoleon. And, and I know that, you know, they... Um, yeah. Movies are, are just that. They are, they are movies and, you know, and they focus in on one thing and they forget another thing. But, but there were some interesting historical turns there in that movie that, that I had never known or considered before. And uh, some of them made sense to me and some of them, I went, man, I didn't ever know that. And that doesn't actually make sense to me. And, and I find myself sometimes doing that. I don't know if you do that, but I find myself doing that with biblical history too there are a number of things that we read about in the bible and we go why did that have to happen or or, i didn't know that that would happen or i don't know the implications of why that happened or all those sorts of things and and sometimes i think when we read the bible from cover to cover what we find is a lot of stories that seem to conflict with each other that are at odds with each other and this what are the implications of this story and how does that affect this story and and this character and all these sorts of things? And you start, start to get a little bit confused sometimes, I think, right? Well, the point that I'm trying to make is, one of the questions we have to ask is, is there an overarching story in the Bible? Is there a big idea narrative... That allows us to put together the pieces of the, the entire story, cover to cover. Is there, is there a narrative, this kind of overarching narrative, that we can put together the pieces of biblical history, of, of world history, of humanity? Is there a way that we can put all that and all the things that have transpired and all the things that will transpire? Is there a way to put that in, in order? in an orderly way to think about it? Or is it just, <coughs> excuse me, is it just chaos? Is it just, you know, happening at break net speed and this thing happens over here and this thing happens over here and, and there's all these things happening and it's just one big jumbled mess? What is going on? is there a narrative? And, and I hope that you can affirmatively answer the question to say yes. Um, it is not just random happenstance. There is this big idea narrative. Um, I, when I was thinking about this idea of, you know, chaos and, and, you know, I was thinking about, (laughs) I was thinking about Nestle Bible Camp and, uh, one year this is probably will be funny to you but i was uh i was the canoeing instructor and uh and and i took the kids out on to nest lake and you know we were canoeing around and um this big kind of sort of windstorm came up and this one little girl uh she was scared of the wind and she thought the best course of action was just to throw her or uh her paddle away and uh and then and she just kind of floated away she had no way to steer herself she was rudderless and and you know we had to go kind of rescue her but she thought her best course of action was just to kind of huddle in the middle of the canoe and and hope for the best and that isn't the idea that that, probably, will, uh, that, that pro- probably wasn't the best course of action for her, but it made me, th- I, I thought of her when I thought about this whole idea of biblical history, or, or just history, and, and, and how there is seemingly no, or it, if we're not careful, it, it seems like everything is kind of in conflict with one another. Um, a ship that has no power, a canoe that has no way to steer itself, is just going to be driven by the wind and the waves. There's going to be no set course. There's going to be no set direction. It's simply going to be adrift on the lake or on the sea. Um, and, there, and, and I think that, it's taking us a long time to get here, but I think that that's the, that's the way some people view history. They, they view uh, the story of the world um, like that, that, that the world is just adrift, that there is no direction. There is no way to steer. It's just happening. The world is adrift in the waves of history. It's rudderless. It's, it's driven simply by the winds and the waves of circumstance. That is not the message that, that Matthew is giving us here. Matthew is giving us a message that is entirely different than this idea of, of the 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 world just being uh, at the whim of the waves and, and the wind and, and all that sort of thing. Matthew is presenting us with a... Uh, Matthew chapter 1 is, is like a compass. It's steering us somewhere, or at least it's pointing us in the direction of somewhere. It's a compass through a series of a list of names. Some of them are easier to pronounce than others. One of the reasons why we're not doing that. Um, But he is going to walk through a couple thousand years of history from the perspective of the nation of Israel. And he's going to show us simply and very clearly that this colorful story is far from random. It's much more than that. This story that Matthew is kind of illustrating for us here is centered on the events of, of Christmas. It's, it's centered on the events of, of the things that, that Matthew is writing about here. It is on the drama that, that unfolds in a stable in Bethlehem on a starry night 2,000 years ago. And he wants us to really get that. He wants us to understand that there is order here. And notice what he says again in verse 17. The generations from Abraham to David were 14. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. From the deportation, to Babylon, uh, of the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. I think that tells us, or it shows us three things. Three things that I want to just maybe highlight this morning. Maybe three lessons about... Um, about the big idea, about the biblical big idea, about God's big idea, God's big picture, if you will. Um, Let me just share them with you really quickly this morning because I think these lessons will give us a framework for making sense of what is on the surface. On the surface, it looks chaotic. But if you dig deeper, you're going to see that there is this narrative that flows through. It's, it's just like what we were talking about in Esther, how God, it's not mentioned, but he's working behind the scenes to make this flow of history. It's the same thing here. So three things. So I would say this, first of all, um, that in God's big picture, history follows God's plan. In God's big picture, History follows his plan. So if you consider Matthew chapter 1, we've already, uh, you know, you have, I'm sure at some point in your life, you have read the names listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ here in Matthew chapter 1. There's a thousand stories to tell that are contained within the names of these stories here in Matthew chapter 1. The list of names, they represent a a compressed and a compact history of the nation of Israel. Israel. And they span about 2,000 years. Two millennia from the time of Abraham to the time of Jesus. And that history of 2,000 years was by no means straight, uh, or like by no means straightforward. And it wasn't always happy. Um, I always think about I don't always think about this, but sometimes I think about this when I'm driving somewhere on an incredibly straight road. You know, this, the roads of Manitoba. Um, I, as I'm driving, I think about what it was, wh- wh- how different it is to drive here and and to drive in British Columbia, where there are curves uh, in the road and and there's no curve signs. <laughs> you ever notice how many curve signs there are here in Manitoba? It's like. The curves take you by surprise. They, they don't, because you can see them coming for miles away. Anyway, I digress. Um, we're used to, truthfully, we are, for the most part in Canada, we're used to driving on straight roads. There's lots of straight straightaways. There are curves, yes, and all those sorts of things, but... Um, it 's not that way all over the world I, I read an article actually about the the ten most scenic drives in the world, and they showed pictures of some of the ones that are in europe and and i can 't remember exactly the one, but it was just amazing it, it it just It spanned like about forty miles but it as the crow flies, it was only like three miles i mean it was just kind of going back and forth switchbacks over a mountain it was It was an incredible kind of thing and 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 I think sometimes my point is that you know when you're when you're driving the route uh, is often more windy and the journey is more arduous when there are lots of curves and and dangerous when you're going up and down that's the same thing in the reality of history and the history of Israel in particular is that it is it is very normally this windy road that is is difficult to traverse sometimes. Rarely does history move cleanly and efficiently from point A to point B in a very linear, straight line. You get from here to here and you go, oh, that's how you did it. You just went from here to here. Well, that's not the way history works. History goes here and then there and then, you know, and back and and all these different things. That's the way history works. usually works rarely does it move cleanly and efficiently from point a to point b and in the midst of the journey as we look at the names in matthew chapter one and we remember their stories we are reminded that there were plenty of ups and downs biblical history did not you know move from here to here in an easy or an orderly fashion there were plenty of curves in the road we see the name abraham in in verse two abraham was the father of isaac And we're reminded of Abraham's story. Is there a less straightforward story than Abraham's story? I mean, here was this guy. He was from Ur, and then he heard a voice and said, go to this place that I'm going to tell you to go to. And And he went and and he did that and and then in the midst of traveling from you know where he was born and where he grew up to what would ultimately be Israel what would be the promised land he made a lot of mistakes along the way he was he's we look at Abraham and we man he was a faithful guy and all that sort of stuff but at the same time he he didn't trust in many different ways I mean he lied about his wife being his sister so that he wouldn't be harmed by um, the king of Egypt and, 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 and all these different things. He was, um, there were multiple stories where he just showed dishonesty and deception and, and a lack of faith. It happens over and over again in his story. And as we look at those grubby incidents, we wonder if Abraham will not only be the beginning of the story, Genesis chapter 12, I will make you a great nation. We wonder if Abraham's going to be the beginning and the end of the story of biblical history. We wonder if God's going to go, well, I made a mistake with this guy and give up on his plan. You read on in that genealogy, and you read the name Jacob. You maybe are reminded about the kind of—it's kind of a sordid tale, how he tricks his father into giving him his birthright over his brother Esau, and 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 that creates this narrative of uh, brotherly infighting, and you know, parents choosing one over the other, and and it just becomes so incredibly messy. One could struggle to imagine how, you know, how this story could actually even move forward with the messiness of Jacob's story. You read, uh, if you move on in that genealogy, you're going to read the name Rahab, verse 5. She was a prostitute. Gentile prostitute in Jericho in a city that was supposed to be decimated to the ground how in heaven's name could a gentile prostitute have her name appear in the genealogy of Jesus Christ we see the name Ruth we remember that Ruth, it's a, it's a beautiful love story, this story of how Ruth was this young widow in a time of famine. She's staring down a future of destitution and perhaps even starvation, and then by seeming chance, although it's not chance at all, of course we, she meets her husband's relative Boaz, a good and upright man, and he marries her and redeems her story becomes her Kinsman Redeemer and we find this widow on the brink of destitution and she's folded up into the great plan of God. We see the name David in verse 6. We're reminded because we often are reminded because we always think of David and Goliath, we think of some of the other amazing stories that are involved in 1st 2nd Samuel. What a great king he was. We also know that he committed adultery, and in an attempt to hide his adultery, he committed murder. So that story gets a bit icky. We know that David was the father of father father uh, father of Solomon, and we know that Solomon was actually uh, the, the son of um, the woman that David committed adultery with. So you get the idea, and I guess I'm, what the point that I'm trying to make here is that there are so many stories within this geo- genealogy where the story starts here, and then it goes here, and then it goes up here, and there's just so many different points along the way where it's just so windy and it gets so convoluted and there's so much sin and there's so many bad choices and then there's good things that happen and, and, every, and it seems like there's going to be this kind of redemption and then all of a sudden there's another mistake that's made. This is a winding road and does this winding road have any kind of destination at all? Verse 7 tells us about Solomon, who was this man who was so wise, and, and he, it seemed like at the time he, he had no equal in the entire world. And then we remember that this same guy that was so wise abandoned all wisdom and gave his heart to a bunch of different ladies, and, and uh, these ladies didn't fear the Lord, and we remember that this king, King Solomon, began well and ended badly. We know that there's guys like Ahaz, verse 9, who were known for wickedness. There were kings like Hezekiah, in verse 10, that tried to do the right thing, but made some pretty major errors, but he did and was known to fear the Lord. We have these turning points in the story of the nation with Abraham the nation began with David the monarchy reached its pinnacle and then we have the deportation or the exile to Babylon Israel faced its greatest crisis. Ten northern tribes had already been lost. Ten of the twelve due to sin and judgment and all these different things were happening. And then after the exile happened, we know that people would return to their land, to Judah, to Jerusalem. And whereas in the old days, pre-exile, we read about the names of Israel's kings in the Chronicles of History. And then after the exile, there are no more kings. There's only governors and Israel is subject, or Judah specifically, is subject to a foreign power that, that they have just become really, in essence, just a province. The Persians, then the Greeks, and the Romans, and they would all take their turns controlling Israel, the land of promise. There would be no Israelite king that would appear. That is until Jesus came. Now, all this, if you would just read it, or if you try to understand it, it could look incredibly chaotic, right? I think so. It probably would look chaotic for the people that were living in Israel at the time. And I think the experience would have felt excellent in good seasons, when Abraham was flourishing, when David was in his prime, when Solomon's kingdom was at its height of its glory. All those moments, I think, for the, the Israelites, it probably the world probably made sense. It probably at that point was really easy to accept God was in control. But in the days of downfall and, and derailment and discouragement, which were actually way more frequent than the days of glory it must have seemed that the process of history was random and it was chaotic and it didn't make any sense. And I think that we know that sensation ourselves, don't we? I think we do. We may well view history precisely in that light today. We might look at history and say, man, this is chaotic. There's just no rhyme or reason to it. It's regularly catastrophic. There's no purpose. There's no plan. There's no order. But notice what... Notice what Matthew gives us here. He gives us a, a ladder he, he gives us something to hold on to this 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 pillar that that can 't be moved and and it 's there to help us to understand what is going on. We use the the illustration of the uh, when we were talking about Esther. we use the illustration of the the, the tapestry um, how God is weaving the story together, and from our perspective, when we're looking at it from underneath, it's really hard to understand the picture because all we can see are these random threads that are going through, and, and there's no prime reason. But if if we were to see it from God's perspective, we would see this grand design. It's the same thing here as we consider history. There are set units in the grand movement of history where the events of Israel's national life were heading somewhere, and they were heading somewhere very concrete. They were heading towards the arrival of a baby in a stable on a starry night in in Bethlehem. And within this insight, I think, is a huge lesson, I think, for you and for me. And the lesson is simply this, that God, I truly hope you believe this, God is sovereign over the movements of history that he does have a grand design, that he does have a big picture. He is sovereign over the ups and he is sovereign over the downs of history. He's sovereign over the messiness and the apparent chaos of history. Through 2,000 years of ups and downs, of triumphs, of glories, of disasters, of discouragements, history was actually all the while going somewhere it was heading to a stable it was heading to a birth it was heading to a baby it was heading to the coming of the christ and the final picture 2000 years after it happened we are still talking about it the final picture is glorious we can be confident that God is still at work. That confidence is at the very heart of the story of Christmas. Christmas is actually a powerful, it is the most powerful reminder of the history of this world that God has not abandoned us, that God has not given up on this world, that he hasn't loosened his grip on history and just kind of made it just let go because he's so frustrated. And this year, as much as any year, you and I, I think we need that reassurance because we are bombarded every day with messages that tell us that the world is spinning out of control. uh, There's wars and rumors of wars. There's economic instability. It would be easy for us to say that God has lost control, but I, I say this unequivocally God is sovereign over this world he's sovereign over our lives and it is moving forward in accordance with those set principles in mind God is sovereign despite what the headlines of the newspapers want to tell us God is sovereign and he is in control he is still at work accomplishing and achieving his grand purposes for our world In God's big picture, history follows his plan. Second thing, in God's big picture, history always proceeds on his timeline. I don't want to belabor this, um, but I think in some ways the most remarkable thing about God's salvation plans for his people, for Israel, and the plans for this world that we live in is perhaps its slowness because it is moving at a snail's pace. Don't you think? In some ways, I think it is. For our, From our human perspective, things seem to be moving very slowly. It's like God is, you know when you need something done in your house and you phone somebody, like a plumber or a repairman cable uh, or anything like that, and they say, we will be there on this day between eight and eight <laughs> or something like that. They they Because they can't, it just seems like they move with these incredible stones. Why couldn't they just say, I will be there at 8.36 and, and show up right exact that moment. That would be so impressive. I would love to see that. Um, no offense if you are a repairman. I apologize. Um, I just think that sometimes we're impatient, Right? Matthew chapter 1 recounts for us this very long wait for the Messiah. 2,000 years. Genealogy begins with Abraham and the promise of Messiah. And in that time, there are 14 generations and 14 generations and 14 generations and actually a few more thrown in there. And in all that time, from Adam and Eve to the calling of Abraham, it was the very beginning of God's plan for salvation, and he would set himself or he would set aside a people for himself, and his salvation purposes would ultimately be realized, and his salvation blessings would go out. And this is what God said to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 that the blessing would come to a lost and a broken and a fallen world through one of Abraham's offspring. But which offspring? Right? I wonder if Abraham went, Well, it's gotta be Isaac. No, doesn't look like it's Isaac. Gonna be Jacob. Nope. Gonna be Esau. Nope he's too hairy. Uh, I, I'm, I don't know how they went through history, and they went through all these different names, and they went, well, it's got to be this guy. He's good, right? And then, nope, not this person, not this person, all the way through. And Matthew takes us through these generations, and we're asking, when would the salvation blessing ultimately come? Who would it be? And we're waiting, and, th- and those people are waiting, they were pining for this Messiah, right? It was promised so long ago. Where is the Messiah? The people of Israel were waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, not just for a century, not just for two centuries, not just for even five centuries. They were waiting for 2,000 years. That's the weight on the descendant of Abraham who would bring salvation blessings to the world. Can you imagine how long a wait that was? Is it any wonder that there were a bunch of them that actually forgot or didn't notice? I mean, there were a lot of people that thought that the promise had been rescinded. That God had forgotten them. And that lesson translates to us really easily too. God's timeline is simply not like ours. We have to stand back and we need to realize that God sometimes will call us to wait for his purposes to be realized. Sometimes to wait in a place of trial or to wait in a place of difficulty when there is no obvious sign actually that he's at work at all. But we are just called upon to believe the promises of God's word, to believe that He is good, to believe and to trust that He's faithful and that He's going to keep us if we belong to Him. See, we just need to understand that God is, He's in no hurry, He's in no need to hurry. And we as his people need to learn and again to trust him for his timing because he knows better than we do because he sees the grand design. It's his after all. And our job isn't to impatiently tap our foot but really just to wait patiently for his salvation purposes to reach their conclusion. So in God's purposes, history follows his plan. It proceeds on his timeline. Here's the last thing it centers on his son it centers on jesus that's essentially the conclusion that matthew comes to it's the grand sweep of history it points the history of israel is broken into three sections abraham to david david to the deportation deportation to the miraculous birth of jesus so this immense history over so many generations, it is profound, it is significant, it is pointing to Jesus, it is finding its fulfillment in him. That's what Matthew is trying to show us. It's showing us that history was actually going somewhere, and where it was going was to Jesus, to the Christ. And, and really, as we reckon with that truth, we need to understand what that word Christ means. We need to know because it is a name that is given to Jesus. Matthew isolates us and shows us that name. The word Christ literally means the anointed one. Just like David was anointed with oil in the Old Testament, it's the same idea here. And over the course of Old Testament history, Israel had these, all these different kings. Some were good, some were mediocre, some were really terrible. Uh, but most famous of all was King David, and he was blessed in so many ways. And in so many ways, he brought blessing to the people of God, but he wasn't perfect. But in 2 Samuel chapter 7, Nathan the prophet is saying to, to, uh, to David, he's saying, when your days are fulfilled, and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring, and he will come from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the kingdom of his, the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be him, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. What a great promise! Do you think that David said, "That's Solomon"? Bet you did. And I bet you they kept going on and on and on. Going, it's got to be this guy. It wasn't any of those people. The great promise to David of a king who would come from his own family. There would be a long wait, but it was it was obviously this history that Matthew gives us in Matthew chapter one was moving somewhere. And it was all built upon the anticipated coming of the Messiah, of the of the Christ. It was all about him. It centered in on him. It was all about his birth. It was all about this first Christmas. It's the centerpiece of history. It's something that we have to get. It's no exaggeration to say that this is the key to history. Any kind of history. This world's story, our story, your story, my story, it finds its meaning in relation to Jesus Christ. And the truth is, if we take it seriously, that should change everything for us. And I don't know where you stand personally. In relation to these things, we've gone through them really quickly. I don't know where you stand in relation to the Jesus Christ of Christmas. If you don't know him, if you haven't come before him in repentance and faith, then this truth actually comes to you, uh, I think, is a direct challenge. It challenges you and it calls you to make your life about serving him this Christ, this king, about preparing for his return, about honoring him, about waiting for him. It's, if, this, if this presentation of history is true, it changes everything. And for us who know him, this view of history, this, this God's view of history, it comes to us as not a challenge, but a comfort, right? Right? Matthew's presentation tells us that the ups and the downs of history, the good kings and the bad kings, the good days of the nation, the wars and the rumors of wars, the economic collapses, they are not the final word. They are not the the things of of first importance. The thing of first importance is simply this. It is knowing the Christ, the coming Messiah. Messiah. It is knowing the king and trusting him and belonging to him and seeking to serve him. That is what matters. And all the rest of the things that, that kind of maybe would seek to block our view of that, they are temporal. They are temporal and they will not last. And God is in control and he's working on his purposes along his timeline, not yours. And he is weaving his great tapestry. And you and I, we ought to rest on that pillow upon which we lay our head at night. The pillow of God's history, not our own. So I would ask you as we close today, I would just say this. Do you know the Christ of Christmas? Have you placed your trust in him? Have you bowed the knee to him? And if not, why not? Will you make your business this Christmas to know him personally? Man, I I pray you do. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this story of history of of Christmas. And and Lord, I, I thank you that um, you help us to make sense of it in, in the midst of the chaos and the, the ups and the downs and all the different things that we see. Father, we know that you are in control. We know that you're sovereign over this world and we know that um, the chaos of the world, is it's not chaos to you, but it's moving somewhere. And I thank you that you've given us the opportunity to be on board with that. And we pray this Christmas that we would focus on, on your Son, the Christ, the Anointed One. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.